Good morning. Any of you guys ever watch The Voice? Okay, so Marie and I. Anyone else? Okay, good. So in The Voice, they've got a bunch of different judges. And John Legend, you guys heard of John Legend? Okay. He's one of the, the uh, judges, and he'll sit there, and when they're listening to someone sing, and they're singing really well, John will kind of do the stank face, and he'll put his hands up like this, and he's like, oh, that's what that first worship set and reading of that scripture felt like for me. Oh, yeah, that's some good stuff. And so, Laura, thank you. Like, that was a sacred time to be able to spend singing praises to God. As we start this sermon today, we've named it, or I've named it, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and how does that end? So help me God. And today we're going to talk about a passage that Karen just read, and it is a passage that is very clear, very direct, uh, pretty harsh, if we're honest, but it's true. And I know for me, even though I don't always like to have hard conversations, there have been hard conversations throughout my life that have helped me actually see the world for what it is because someone told me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We live in a time period where people have a lot of agendas when they give you news, you know what I'm saying? And they don't tell you everything, and one place wants to tell you one thing, another place wants to tell you another thing for whatever reason, and that's what it's been like my entire lifetime and way before I was born. Today we're going to teach a passage that might hit us in the face if we're listening, and I want and I hope and my prayer is that as we hear this, we wouldn't take this and go, oh, Tim's just being mean. I'm not being mean, I'm just reading the Bible. Get mad at God. But this is true what we're going to study today. We get to study a much better sermon than the one I'm about to bring you today. We get to study a sermon within a sermon. It's sermon inception. Huh? Huh? This is good stuff. And it's brought to us by the Holy Spirit through Peter the Apostle, a sermon that was not within the walls of a church building, not judged based on the visual cues used in it from what we know. Peter didn't have five points that all began with a letter that created an easily remembered acronym, faith. That's not what happened. What we have is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit dominating Peter, filling Peter at the right time in the right place for the glory of God. Now, preaching, it's what I do. Some people ask me what I do, and every once in a while I'll say preacher, but not generally. Preaching isn't always understood by people outside the church, and sometimes it's not even really understood by us inside the church. It's looked down upon in our culture, uh, don't preach at me, bro, is something that sometimes we hear, as a slang term for don't give me your opinion in a monologue, or strongly, I don't want to hear what you're saying to me right now. But the reality is that most of us don't like to be preached at, but we don't mind being preached over. And today, I'm going to preach, and I'm not going to name names. I might a little, actually. But I want you to hear what's being preached from the Word of God because no one ever should read the Word and go, that doesn't apply to me, because God knew you when He wrote it. He did. So we don't always like to be preached at, but we'll be preached over, and sometimes we'll just grab the thing that we like, and then that'll become our takeaway, and we'll hold on to that for a week and possibly forget it. Today we're going to see Peter preach a corporate message to thousands, but there will be some finger pointing. I'll just keep pointing at Mike. And Peter won't shy away from speaking the truth while pointing out to his listeners the responsibility that they have had with what actually happened. 
Paul tells us the importance of preaching in Romans chapter 10. He writes in 10 verses 12 through 14, for there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. More on that later. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Preaching is the proclaiming of a message, and I often refer to preaching as teaching with persuasion. And let me tell you what I hope you will do today as I persuade you through the Word of God. Repent. Because as we've said, repentance is always an opportunity. It's an invitation to be intimate with God. For those celebrating Pentecost from all over different areas, they came to celebrate God and His majesty, but what the Holy Spirit was going to do through the apostles was proclaim and explain who the God that they were worshiping really is, confirmed and affirmed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So here we go, starting in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Peter stands, which was a way of making known that what he was about to do was to sermonize and begins with Jews of all who live around Jerusalem in a loud voice, or the text says he raised his voice, and he was speaking to many, many people. The spoiler is that later on, it says that 3,000 people came to faith through this preaching, and most commentators believe that that really just meant 3,000 men. So I think many more probably came to faith, and yet not everyone came to faith, so I think it's fair to estimate that there may have been near 10,000 people hearing Peter's words. That would be significant for a sound system, let alone the fact that those did not exist yet. And as we discussed a little about this, specifically in the cohort that I get to be a part of on Tuesday nights for me, it was mentioned that everything that was built around there was built out of stone. And I don't know if you've ever been in a cave, but I know sound travels a lot better bouncing off of rocks than wood. And Peter then says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> okay. This makes me giggle. I'll explain why in a second. But last week, we concluded with the reading and studying of the passage in verse 13, which said, verse 13, Acts 2, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So last week, we studied the coming of the Holy Spirit and pointed out a few things from the text that even though the Spirit came in a very grand and miraculous and, I keep thinking Dora the Explorer, grandioso way, the gifts were not the point. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity coming in His power was the point. And even though people spoke in different languages not learned by those speaking, those in attendance heard about the wonders of God in their own languages, and so God was exalted. So now you have this crowd gathering from what sounded like a rushing wind and what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on the heads of those who were speaking. And yet, as they ran up to find out what the commotion was all about, there were people who either didn't see or experience what the original group were experiencing, or were just skeptical anyway, and assumed that the natural explanation was that these people were drinking to the point of intoxication. So Peter, either sensing this or probably hearing this, says, they are not drunk like you suppose, it is only nine in the morning. Now, this makes me giggle because I think often we just assume that mimosas were frowned upon. That's not what this is about. 
In Pentecost, with Pentecost, there was a fast that was taking place that usually would be broken a few hours later. And so it's not just that generally people aren't getting drunk super early in the morning, but that because of the festival of weeks, seven weeks, 49, and now on the 50th day, what is symbolized is God-fearing Jews were not breaking fasts for bread and, other than bread and water at all. Now, Peter is going to proclaim what I consider one of the most important sermons in all of Scripture, not because of the results, which are often focused on, and we're going to study next week, but because of the content in which the Holy Spirit leads Peter to proclaim. So, let's go. Chapter 2, verse 16, here's what it says. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter's going to go back to what the Old Testament communicated in chapter 2 of the letter known as Joel, written down by the prophet Joel. Without going into great detail about this book called and authored by the prophet Joel, I want to point out what the Lord showed Joel way before it happened. Look at what Peter says as he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Here's what it says in Acts 2, 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Some translations say all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone, verse 21, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot here. Let me begin where Peter began. If you read the prophecy as it occurs in the second chapter of Joel, you will find that before this passage, the prophet had predicted that the Lord would visit his people. He would come to them and would live amongst them, live in their midst. Then, as the prophet puts it, afterwards, after visitation, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. The contrast between the visitation of God to Israel and the pouring out of the Spirit upon all peoples everywhere, Gentiles as well as Jews would now receive this. Yes. The emphasis of this section is that now the good news about Jesus Christ is to go out to Gentiles as well as the Jews, so that means everybody. Then he goes on to say that your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. There seems to be, at first, this emphasis on youth. Now, how many of you still think you're young? A couple of you aren't sure. Larry's like, yes, absolutely. Okay, that's good. Don't laugh. Larry is. There seems to be this emphasis on youth and then the contrast of ages with the Spirit coming. He does not only use those with more experience, but the Spirit can use people of all types of ages. And from the context we read in Acts, from all different geographic places, walks of life, and languages. Then he moves to servants, both male and female, with the intention of making known that gospel belief and the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in those who believe is for any and every type of social class. It is not just for the wealthy, and it isn't just for those who have hardship financially. The Spirit is being poured out on all types of people, and as Mike said just a moment ago, woo! And what will they do? 
Joel says they will prophesy. A term that I also think, like the term speaking in tongues, which we talked about last week, have gotten very, very, very far from the original meaning biblically. To prophesy is not to speak on behalf of God like in the Old Testament, where prophets would be sent by God to speak for Him and their words would be written down, and then we would test and check them and make sure that they were valid. A prophet was not wrong ever. A prophet spoke with authority. We are not prophets, church. Similar to the fact that the Holy Spirit has come and we no longer need to cast lots in order to guess God's will. We now have the Spirit of God who wrote the Word of God to reveal the Word of God, or the will of God. And so prophecy, while I believe is still relevant and taking place today, comes with a new way of understanding it to be true. We judge it based on the full counsel of Scripture, which helps us decipher God's will while being consistent about what God says and implies through the checking the Word of God against the Word of God. Ray Steadman, anyone heard of him? He was a pastor in Palo Alto, very popular back in the day. For many years, he preached in Palo Alto, and here's how he put it. Prophecy is the ability in power to declare the Word of God, to tell forth the Word of God. See the emphasis on the Word of God? Because we don't need to add to what has already been communicated through the Holy Spirit, written down and canonized, so we could have the Bible to read and learn from and obey. Where some believe that they can add to Scripture or even quote the Bible with a different meaning which is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. To prophesy is not to make up something new, but to emphasize something that God has already said before. So the Spirit is for all types of people in nationality, age, gender, and social economic class. And there will be visions, dreaming of dreams. But you know what Joel and Peter both leave out? Speaking in tongues. There's no mention of them. Instead, he refers to another gift of the Spirit, the gift of prophecy. And it will be manifested by young and old men, servants and obscure people. They will be equipped by the Spirit to teach the Word of God with power that will be the mark of the age, he says. The emphasis is not upon tongues at all, even though for some reason in the church of the living God for the past hundred years especially, it feels like that's been the emphasis. It's not about the tongues at all. It's not even about the gifts, but upon the Spirit who gives the gifts. So much of this prophecy from the book of Joel seemed to be being fulfilled, but not all of it. This was, as Joel said and Peter recited, until the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood. So much of what was foretold was taking place in real time, but not all of it was actually being fulfilled all at once. The symbolism of the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood would take place before the second coming of Christ. And he concludes with Joel's words of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Joel wrote this, or said this, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born to Mary, and he was speaking ahead of the Lord who would be born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, and who had just lived, died, and rose again, and had ascended to heaven. And calling on his name was something that was evidence of grace being received. 
Calling on the Lord was not something that was flippant or ritualistic. It wasn't stubbing your toe and yelling out Jesus. It's not just saying his name, but it's trusting that he, Jesus, was the one that could change our eternal trajectory from death and damnation to eternal life in paradise. Look at how Peter pivots, pivot to this exact point. Acts 2, verse 22. We watch friends at our house, unfortunately. For Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. All right, Peter's going to get after it. And if I don't get an amen or a hallelujah from the text, I'm going to lose it, all right? Jesus, who performed supernatural miracles, did not do them just to entertain, but to confirm his deity and his messiahship. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, Jesus' wrongful conviction and unfair sentencing to death, while wrong and evidence of mankind's sinful nature, was allowed in God's plan. Let me let that sit for a second. As a Savior would die in the place of those who need saving. That's us. And you, Peter says, with the help of wicked men. I wonder if he's pointing. You, Mike, killed Jesus. Wow. Some of them were humanly at fault because they were part of the crowd and mob who chose Jesus to be crucified over Barabbas. But all of them, and us to this day, are guilty of Jesus' death because our sin created a chasm between us and God, and the only way that the wrong could be righted was by God taking on flesh and receiving the punishment that, he, that we deserve. This is Peter not holding back. This is Peter telling the truth to a huge crowd of people, most that he did not know. But in boldness and power, he proclaimed what he knew and saw without fear of repercussions or harm coming upon him and the other disciples. I wonder what was the most offensive to this crowd, because there were a few things that could offend them. There were God-fearing Jews. Was it that Peter said that they all played a part in killing Jesus and maybe pointed? Was it that he said that their religious effort could not save them? Or that any and every type of people would and could receive the Holy Spirit, no matter their pedigree, family, or social class. Confession. I hold back sometimes. I know some of you are like, seriously? Yes, I hold back sometimes. Because not everything I study or learn in a passage is necessary to be preached on Sunday. This would be a four-hour sermon. There's so much stuff that I want to say, but I'm like, that's not the point. That's not the emphasis. That's so nerdy. And sometimes I hold back, if I'm honest, because of fear of man. Because I think that if I told you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you'd stop listening, which absolutely has taken place here before. I also hold back because perhaps I know that Rome wasn't built in a day. And as one of the shepherds of the flock here at Church of the Valley, I believe that sometimes people need to be eased into the realities of their sinful behavior and how it affects their intimacy with God. I'm not here to tell you to stop sinning because God's mad at you. I'm here to stop telling you to sin in the way that you have because it stops the trajectory of intimacy with God that you could be having. 
and I'm preaching to myself. It retards your spiritual growth. What I understand and am able to accept as a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm a little over 20 years into this following of Jesus thing, is much broader and deeper now than what I could understand and stomach the first few years of my following of Jesus. As you look around this congregation, there are people from many different social classes, many different nationalities, different ages, and different experiences. One thing I know for sure is your physical age doesn't apply to your spiritual maturity. Sorry. Just because you were born before someone doesn't mean you have grown more than they have necessarily. The reality of grace for me is a constant struggle of wanting grace for myself while internally not believing that others deserve grace, which is actually the point. The point of grace is that they and I do not deserve it. And if you don't believe you contributed to Jesus' death, you're wrong. But if you claim Jesus, if you say that he is yours, if you are his, if you explain and proclaim his word to others with the intent of wanting them to know your Lord, if you really want others to experience Jesus, not just come to church, not just be religious, but to know intimacy with God, he better be your Lord, not just in words, but in the way you live your life. Some of you live as if sin doesn't matter, and all that tells the world is that the Savior that you proclaim doesn't matter to you. I'm sinful. I say that every week, and not because, you know, you guys couldn't find dirt on me. I'm sinful. And I contributed Jesus' death on the cross through my sin. But that doesn't mean I give up pursuing the perfect one. Not to justify myself, not to, hey, if I just go to church, I'm better, but to love the Lord, of God, Lord my God with all my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. The person who says that Jesus is their Lord but lives however they want is a liar. Know how I know that? Look at what the disciple whom Jesus loves says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So don't get mad at me. I mean, you can, but God said it through John. Harsh, but fair. Listen, I don't rant about this because I need all of us to be more morally modified and to modify our behavior, so then we will be justified. Anyone who believes that you can work for your salvation does not believe in the gospel. But I say this because our sin is, here's, here's a word I like, rancid to God. It was a band in the, never mind. And it slows down our Christ-likeness. It decays our intimacy with the Lord. And it is more if it is more important to us than the grace of God and love for Him because we'd prefer to disobey than obey Him, it's actually the marker that we truly never wanted to follow Him in the first place. Well, look at what John says next in verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Our obedience to him is validation of our love for him done for the right reasons. A point that John makes over and over and over in this letter in 1 John. So Peter first pushes on the responsibility of man in the death of Jesus. And then he says, verse 24... But God raised him from the dead. Whoa! Sorry. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible. 
for death to keep its hold on him. What do the kids say these days? That is fire. Is that what they say? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead. Anyone remember Ric Flair from the... Oh, yeah. Woo! That's what that is. And I don't know about you. I don't know what you get passionate about, but the resurrection of Jesus is more important than the Niners going to the Super Bowl. It is. It's more important than a promotion at work. It's more important than a purchase of a home in Silicon Valley. It's more important than your wedding day. It's more important than your stock options going through the roof. I, I put lottery and I was like, what? No, we're in Silicon Valley, stock options. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead means Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He defeated death. Death don't win. Death is beaten. Our lives are but a mist, but our eternity is secure if we have trusted Jesus by faith in this life because we are with him and he is with us and he is not dead. He is not decaying. He is not beaten. He is risen. He is alive. He is victorious and our future is secured in hope in this life and paradise in the next where there is no more sin, there is no more pain, there is no more fracture of relationship between us and God. Luke does not refer to anyone after Peter speaks of the resurrection objecting to this statement. He doesn't say, well, people are sneering at the idea that he rose from the… It happened in the same place, not too far from where Peter was proclaiming this. And Luke points out the objection to the speaking in different languages, but there isn't a mention of the objection to the miracle of Jesus rising from the dead. If there were, Luke would have added it in. And then Peter points to what David said in the Psalms. And i got to be honest, every time I read this passage, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit, and I thank God for commentaries, because it helped. David said about him in Acts 2.25, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me in, you will fill me with joy in your presence. The point that Peter is making here by this quotation from the 16th Psalm is not merely that David had predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead, even though he did. It is also that David had declared that the resurrection was absolutely necessary in view of the life that Jesus had lived. David foresaw Jesus saying, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. That is a life lived in continual dependence upon the power and authority of the Father. Because, Lord, I have trusted and rested upon my God, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my body will rest in hope, for you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. But instead, you, God, will make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. That is the prediction of David, and it simply indicates the kind of life Jesus lived guaranteed that death would not have power over him because he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And the second point that Peter makes is that David was not talking about himself. 
He says in Acts 2, 29, fellow Israelites, fellow brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. I even picture Peter going, and it's right over there. But he, Peter says about David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we were all witnesses of it. Hallelujah. Mm, Stank face. Peter points out that David couldn't be talking about himself because David was in a tomb. It was close to where he was preaching in Jerusalem, and to this day it is still known where David was buried, and that is where David's body lay, that is where David's body saw decay, but Jesus is not in the tomb. You know why? Because he rose from the dead, and we were all witnesses of this fact, Peter says to the crowd. Verse 33 exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear, for David did not ascend, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Wow. Once again, the apostle turns the whole crowd into witnesses of what was claimed. He says, you are seeing right now the proof of what David had predicted would happen. And he quotes from the 110th Psalm, the prediction that God would say to David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I make you a ruler over all, till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And now Peter says, you know that this has happened being exalted to the right hand of the Father and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has now poured out this which you now see and hear. And what took place from the coming of the Spirit, which came in a huge way of the sound like a rushing wind and what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on the heads of those who believed in Jesus, the power of being filled with the Spirit, the boldness of Peter to speak the truth of the gospel to people that didn't necessarily want to hear it to apply it from the Old Testament, to explain the predictions, and to tell the crowd the truth of their contribution to the death of Jesus and the reality that Jesus was not abandoned. His body did not see decay, that God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And Peter concludes, therefore, let all be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter drops the mic even though there were no microphones or sound systems. He was dominated by the Holy Spirit, and he tells those who are within earshot, one, that they contributed to the execution of Jesus who, had, who God had made both Lord and Messiah, And the crowd who probably did consist of many who wanted Jesus to be crucified, when Pilate gave the option to let Jesus go, were now hearing how their actions had led to the death of an innocent man. And yet God, and especially after we studied Judas, you need to hear this, yet God used a terrible injustice to bring any and everyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be forgiven of their sins. 
That means we got a shot, y'all. Unlike Aaron Rodgers. Sorry. It was just, it was right there. It was too easy. It was too easy. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Lord. I don't know how guilty or awful the people in this crowd felt or what they were thinking when they first heard from the mouth of Peter what he was saying. Next week, we will study the result and the spoiler, and many, many, many people were cut to the heart and repented and called on the name of the Lord Jesus. And I may not know how they felt when Peter was preaching this to them, but I know how I felt when I first really realized how much I needed grace and I couldn't work my way to God. Before I became a Christian, God gave me an example that was far too clear And I didn't connect the dots until many years later to how it was Jesus and a resurrected king, what he had actually done for me through grace. When I was in high school, I had a job at an office supply chain. I won't mention which one. And I started as a sales associate. And before I was even 18, I had become a floor supervisor. I'm not sure if that was supposed to happen, but that's what happened. And in that time, I was a pretty obnoxious kid. I am no longer a kid. And let me be real with you guys, like, I'm a 17-year-old, I'm in high school, I'm playing sports and I have a job, and I was a bit of a little kleptomaniac, actually. I used to steal stuff from the place where I worked, and, and used to steal stuff, uh, I stole a lot of stuff. And I would take stuff, and then after time, I started to realize that the stuff I was stealing uh, wasn't because I wanted it, I was a printer, who cares, I did, whatever, Kinko's, anyway. Yeah, I'm like in a 90s thing today, rancid. Um, I, I started to steal things, and I really didn't think I was going to get caught. And I started to do this for months and months and months on end, and then one day, I won't go into all the specifics, I was walking out to my car to leave, and this dude walks in, and he asked me for directions, but he looks a little familiar, and then I realized, wait, no, he's one of the guys who works at the corporate office, and then he's like, hey, could you come with me into the place? And I was like, uh-oh, and then he caught me. And he found out all the stuff I had been stealing, and anything that I say about this will, uh, as far as numbers, will just glorify something I don't want to glorify, but I was an idiot. And so he caught me over a few months of stealing things, and he called the police, and a bunch of stuff happened, and my dad came down uh, and lawyered us up and everything, and before any of that could take place, I, was, I went and everything that I stole that I still have, which wasn't very much because I would give it away, I, Robin Hood, not really, I gave, it, I gave it back to him. And I really thought I was going to go to jail. I was 17, 359 days old. And they wanted to try me as an adult. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but I, obviously I didn't work there anymore. I think that goes without saying. Duh. Um, you, got, you can be in loss prevention now. Sorry. Um, I, uh, huh. For two months, not only was I grounded, but I was in serious fear that I was going to be arrested. And two months later, uh, my dad gets this call, and they want to talk to me, and so I get on the phone, and they basically tell me, and they forward a letter as well that says that all charges have been dropped, and um, 
you obviously can't work for this company ever again, but all charges have been dropped and, and no further legal things will be pursued against you. <laughs> Had no idea why. And then a few weeks later, I was talking to somebody and it turned out that the boss who had hired me at the place, his name was Bill, still is probably, I doubt he changed it. Um, Bill, uh, Bill had hired me as a seven, uh, when I first turned 17 and he really saw something in me and he knew, you know, I, I didn't really have a close relationship with my dad. My mom had died when I was younger. I had these things that I had dealt with and, and Bill really kind of took me under his wing and I did this to him. I stole from the place where he was manager and I didn't even feel remorse as I was doing it. And he went to bat and he basically talked to corporate and they had been trying to get him to be in the corporate office for years because he was a really good manager. And he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to work harder. He liked what he was doing. And, uh, and so he came to them and he said, hey, if you'll not try Tim, I'll go work for you in the corporate office. So he did that, and I, he never told me about it. He never, I heard through some other people that I knew what had happened, and, and I remember about two years later, I heard that he was uh, kind of moving around, and he was helping one store in a different area, and I went into the store, and I walked in, and I just, I gave him the biggest hug, and I thanked him, and he said, don't waste this opportunity. That's grace. I didn't deserve it. I deserve to be getting out of jail around now. That's what I deserve. And God, in his foreknowledge, showed me grace in a situation that I would have never expected. And when I became a Christian two years later, it still took five, ten years before I really started to notice how that was the, my perfect analogy for grace before I had ever received it. And so, church... As Peter preaches, and he tells these people, hey, you killed Jesus. Hey, you've done things against God. You've affected the reality that you are not perfect and you cannot work your way to God. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Why? Because of his incomparable riches of his grace, shown to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Laura, would you come on up? I just want to pray for us. Now that you're like, wow, our pastor should be a felon. Yep. I'm obviously changing the order. Yeah. We're going to sing. And we're going to praise our God right now. And my ask is that you'd stand with me and that we would sing. And if you don't feel comfortable singing, that's okay. But would you just use this time to think about the message that you just heard and maybe dialogue with your God internally about what God wants you to do differently. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, I thank you for what you're doing amongst these people. I thank you that you are here with us and that you're at work. God, I pray that the truth of your word, the reality that Jesus is alive would not fall on deaf ears, but we would understand that there is life in him. He's available for any and everyone who would repent. For those of us who've been Christians since the ark was built, God, I pray 
that we would be a people that would turn back to him, that we would be willing to allow the beauty of his face to shine on us because we're not running from him and stiff-arming him. God, I pray that you would use this time of worship to connect something from our head to our heart for the glory of your name. Pray this in Jesus' name.